going on, everybody? Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of The Welk Report with me, Jean Luc Welk. Make some noise, clap it up, get excited wherever you are, because we are back with another jam packed episode as we always come with the fire, the fervor, the energy, all the pizzazz, the, 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 the excitement that is the sports world. You get it right here on the workshop with every week. So don't ever leave this show because you will never get any other entertainment as good as this. All we got a bunch of stuff to talk about in the world of the NBA, which is what this episode is dedicated to with Victor Wimbenyama and his phenomenal start to the season. How, what has made this man so great in the NBA that goes beyond just the size of this, again, unicorn, mythical-like figure that we're seeing walking amongst the NBA and moving up and down 94 feet on a basketball floor, as well as Ron Cover talking about LeBron James and his career today. Would it have been the same if he did not go to Miami? Would he still have been the same player if he never went to the Miami Heat and experienced the Heat culture that we now know and laud and respect? I'm going to give you my thoughts on that because everybody in the world, social media, ESPN, TV, Fox, you name it, they've been talking about it, debating it. I'm going to give you my thoughts on it as well. On top of, we're going to talk about James Harden and his trade from the Sixers to the Clippers. Oh, yes, the saga is over. Harden's finally gone. Devin Morey finally gelled up his end of the deal, got him out of there. What does this mean for James Harden and his chances to actually win a title with the Clippers and for the Clippers as a whole? Have they improved or has stuff maybe not just stayed the same, but potentially gotten worse? Oh, we're going to talk about all that right here on this show. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Leave a like on the video. Comment your thoughts and opinions. Subscribe to the channel and share the show with everybody that you know so we can build up this, build up this empire together. We're almost at five. 100 subscribers, and if we can get there, we can get to a thousand and build up this empire, build up this community together, one person, man, woman, or child at a time. And all I can't do this without you because I love doing this for you. And plus, I want to make some moolah on this side. Uh, you're getting close to that ad revenue status. Oh, yes, indeed. And I can't do it without your help. So, thank you for all the support so far. And please share the show with everybody. That you know, we're also available on every podcasting platform Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, you name it, we're there. And if we're not, tell me and I will get there just and believe. But let's jump into the world of the NBA right now. Talking about Victor Winbenyama and his phenomenal start to the season. This brother has been something serious. We've been saying Winbenyama can be something special. Winbenyama is going to be something fierce. Winbenyama can potentially turn the whole league upside down in a matter of moments once he steps on the NBA floor. But there was some speculation. There was some holding out of hope. Because as you all know, we don't just jump on stuff on this show. We give it time to, 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 to cure. Give it time to breathe. Give it time to breathe. Give it time to fully mold and fully give us an opportunity to see. Okay, is this something serious? And is this something to actually latch on to as a legitimate point of view on this young man's career? And talking about Victor Wimbenyama as a league breaker, we were saying this could be something serious, but will it actually hold true once he gets to the legitimate NBA season, dealing with big bodies, dealing with starting lineups, dealing with legitimate physicality, legitimate strength, going up against some people that are actually trying? Well, now that that's been answered with his play, we can now say that's legitimately true. This brother's the real deal. This cat's the truth. Victor Wembanyama is not just a mythical creature that just has some 
high hopes. No, he's living up to these expectations. And in some, in some ways, outplaying, especially early on in the season. Butler's averaging 20 points, 8 boards, 2.7 blocks. Might as well be 3 blocks a game. This, he's shooting, he's able to shoot the 3, can dribble, legitimately can get to the hole. Has been a dominant rim protector on defense, as well as can go out and defend the 3-point line on the perimeter. Has made people not be able to calibrate him correctly. Had people can't figure out how to shoot over him. He's been a legitimate difference maker for the entirety of the Spurs organization. Thank goodness he went to the Spurs. We're about to see somebody, if everything bogues true, turn into a legitimate savant on both ends of the floor. Continuing the legacy, potentially, of people like David Robinson, of people like Tim Duncan, of people like, to a lesser extent, for when he got onto the team, Artis Gilmore, and other greats that Spurs have had throughout their career. This could be a legitimate sign of a blossoming star with a Hall of Fame trajectory unfolding right in front of us. But he has been so, so great. But what is it that's made him so great outside of the rest, the whole of his skill sets? Yes, like we discovered, he can handle the rock like a guard. He legitimately has speed and agility and mobility. He isn't somebody that is stiff when it comes to moving on the floor. Yes, we know he can shoot from both the mid-range and the three-point line. He can get to the hole. He can play down low. He can catch lobs. He's able to be faster and quicker and outmaneuver any matchup in terms of the centers that he goes up against and can shoot over anybody else coming his way that isn't seven feet or above. In fact, he can shoot over people that are seven feet or above. But because, again, he's seven foot three, seven foot four. But in terms of the dominance of being a... A tall player, he's taken advantage of in a way that I didn't think he was going to actually be able to do. Because oftentimes we've seen players shrink when it comes to being having a size advantage. And by shrink, I don't mean they play below their level. I'm saying they play below their height. We see players not being able to take advantage of the physical gifts that they have over their opponents, oftentimes relegated to taking Shots they don't need to take and get into spaces on the floor that they don't need to operate on as their main base of working when it comes to being an offensive player. AD, we got on him for a number of years for being somebody who would, you're dominant, you're 6'10", 6'11", athletic, strong, can get to the hole any time that you want, yet you choose to play in the mid-range and shoot fadeaways and three-pointers, which at one point in time became out of viable, but then... When it got worse, okay, get to the hole and do what you do best. Dominate down low, and he wouldn't do it, giving up his advantage. Shaq got on him for it. Chuck got on, on him for it, and the rest of the NBA got on him for it because it was a, a, a fan base. Again, players were like, yeah, keep on shooting, but the rest of the fan bases were essentially saying, hey, yo, you are not playing up to your physical gifts, and you're letting easy opportunities get away from you for no good reason. Victor Wimbanyama's not doing it. He's actively utilizing his height to the best of his ability to maximize the physical capabilities that he has at his disposal and is not letting anything get away from him in terms of let me not play outside of my game. Though he can do a bunch of stuff, he understands what he's good at. I'm taller than you. Once I get positioning, I can either just do straight up hooks over you, catch lobs over you, or shoot over you. Either way, I'm not going to waste time which is what we love about him. And that's the biggest thing that makes Victor Wimbanyama so special in this league at this stage in his career. Actually, it's two things. 
two or three. Is it two or three? Yeah, yeah. It's two things. One, his maturity. Operating as the vocal point for the Spurs offense, being somebody who is, in essence, being given the keys to the kingdom and being said, okay, now this is your team. This is your organization. You are the main guy. We've seen it get to people's heads and it not work out. We've seen people shrink under pressure. Victor Wimbayama walks with a sense of maturity. Understand, he walks like he's been here before. Because he has been here before. He was like this over in France. He was the best player over in France, over in Europe, and overseas as a whole. The main guy. And yet, he was able to consistently produce and come through. Being the most dominant force overseas. Now coming over here to the Spurs with the, against the best level of competition. Again, giving me those same keys and again keeping that same even keel level of maturity. Understanding the moment, understanding what his role is in terms of being the, the leader of this squad, the vocal point for where everything in this organization will revolve around and taking it in stride and being able to calmly and confidently operate as such. And we see it without, with how seamless his transition from playing overseas to playing here has been. Being able to adapt to the, to, again, adapting still in his young career to the speed and level of the NBA and how they play. Yet he's been, it seemed like he's, he's been there for a couple years. The maturity and IQ of this man at such a young age has been phenomenal to watch. But even bigger than that, with him being in this league, the best thing that's been able to get him to such a fast track to success like we're seeing him right now is his ability to make decisions quickly, like I touched on earlier. The decisiveness of Victor Wimbayama is what has made him such a dominant player at this young age today. This is the man who, who scored 38 points, 10 boards, and I believe a couple blocks against Kevin Durant. <coughs> Excuse me, and the Phoenix Suns. This is a man who has gone toe to toe, one of the best scorers in the in NBA history, and held his own, if not outscored him, I believe, and dominated. And it's not just the maturity; it's how he's doing, and he's doing it similar to what we see from people like Zion Williams. We lauded Zion earlier in his career. We talked about him on the show as well. It's the ability to not waste time in making decisions. The, decisive, the, the, the decisiveness and his ability to make the move that he wants to make and commit to it. Coupled with the unhuman, inhuman-like speed and quickness that he has at that height against centers, against power forwards, against people that normally don't have that quick of a first step. On the defensive end, he's been able to cook people because he understands that if he wastes time, he's letting go of the physical capabilities that he has at his disposal. It makes no sense at all to have to, 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 to think about the move that he wants to make rather than just making the move outright. And that's what Victor's been able to do. Taking a page out of Zion Williamson's book and willingly going at his opponents without needing to waste time in thinking about what he wants to do. He sees an opening against the position. He sees that his opponent's behind him. What does he do? Run to the free throw line and get a turnaround jumper off the catch. Bringing the ball up the floor, and when he goes and you sag off on him, okay, I'm going to shoot it. You play too close to him, okay, I'm going to take it to the hole. 
I get positioning down low, instant drop step into a layup, finger roll layup, like we see from like we saw from Wilk Chamberlain way, way, way back in the day, or post hook. Or I got you on the block. Where isolation, you're smaller than Lee, you're smaller than me. One dribble, shoot it. Or no dribble, pull up instantly. Not wasting any effort, not wasting any energy, not wasting any thought time trying to decipher what the best move is. Rather, just make the move. And it's something that hasn't been done, nor hasn't been seen to this degree at somebody of this height. It hasn't. It just hasn't. The fluidity of his total game and the ability to make quick decisions without needing to essentially process it, just go. It's incredible. His understanding of the game at this point is phenomenal. And the biggest thing that he understands is don't waste time, which is something that many other players, many other athletes, many other people in, in both Zion's and Wimby's position fail to do. Julius Randle, perfect example. Brother went from averaging 21 points a game, averaging 13 right now, on I believe about 25% field goal percentage. Insanely bad. Absolutely horrible. Terrible. Knicks fans should be ashamed. I've been on this brother for a long time because I hated the way he plays. Hated the way that he plays. Never talked about it here. Now I get an opportunity to. Hated the way that he played. Hated the way Julius Randle plays. Because it's, it's one, it's egregious. Two, it's a lot of stupidity. And three, it's a lot of wasted time, wasted thought, wasted energy. All to make a move that amounts to nothing. All of it. Step back threes when you don't need them. Oh, too much down in the paint when you can make one move and then just go and score there's so much stuff about his game that is because he overthinks stuff, which is why we see where he is right now and why the Knicks are where they are. It's, it's just the truth. Him failing Jalen Brunson with his idiotic play is ridiculous. And one of the main points of that is because he over, there's, a, there's a lot more to it. Don't get me wrong. One of the biggest points to it is because of the fact that he overthinks things. That's not what Zion does. It's not what Victor Wimbayama does. They make the move, get to their spot, don't waste time. Not to mention Victor's ability to have great, good court vision for this stage in his career, have the dexterity on defense to be able to guard in the perimeter and down low, and recover, making freak-like plays, Stretching out for a block. Stretching out for a steal. Defensively disciplined. Won't get into a whole bunch of foul trouble. And can run out in transition. Can run out on the break. Like I talked about earlier. Can bring, bring the ball up the floor. This man is a... He's an anomaly. He's a player we've never seen a player like this before. We haven't. Or have we? Or have we? Have we seen Victor Wimbiam before in the league today? And the answer is yes. Yes, I know that brings a bunch of people's eyes raised, eyebrows raised, questions asked. John, look what the world's wrong with you. How dare you? 
how dare I? It's right. Because I got a, I got a real reason to say that. This isn't just a, 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 this isn't some hyperbolic comment. This isn't some clicks for stuff. No. This is a legitimate thing. And the second point in the show, talking about Victor Wimbayama, have we seen Victor Wimbayama before? Yes, we have. We've seen it in Bobo. To a lesser degree, we've seen it to Christa and Christophe Porzingis. But the difference between them is the production. We have to understand a seven foot two, seven foot three player who can handle the rock, move with great fluidity, agility, and mobility, can run in transition, can bring the ball at the floor, can shoot the three, has the ability to get to the rack, and be a legitimate down low threat to be a defensive savant. That was what we talked about when we watched Bobo. For the entirety of his come up in AAU, high school, and then getting to the NBA. All of that. We watched him. Watched him grow. Saying, oh man, this, this, this could be something insane if everything pans out. That whole lineup with Frank Wagner, Frank Wagner, excuse me, or excuse me, Franz Wagner, Pablo Bancaro, Bobo, and I believe another seven-footer, 6'10 to seven-footer, all on the Orlando Magic was seen as something incredible, a potential lineup. My goodness, four seven-footers, 6'10 to seven feet, can handle the rock, shoot, defend, length all around the court. That could be a monster. We have seen somebody like Victor before in Bobo, dimensions-wise. Bobo was the archetype. Kristaps Porzingis, when he first came into the league, though we had people who didn't know his name, I didn't either. Nobody did. Hence why he got so much ire when he got drafted to the Knicks. Bobo, Stephen A., and anybody else who watched the Knicks, just be the Knicks. Failed, seemingly, every time, at least with this pick. A routine of mediocrity, the bad decision by the, the Knicks. Business as usual, simply. But what happened? All of a sudden, this seven foot three brother, uh, one of the best defensive players in the league, one of the best shot blockers in the league, could shoot the three, could get to the hole, could play down low, legitimately strong, could dominate games on his own. Was, was faster than any other big man you put in front of him. Could use his height. Could shoot from the mid-range. Could change a game just by him being him. And had a versatile offense that you couldn't just shut him down with one way. That is what Christoph Sprzingis was when he got into the league and when he started performing. When he started producing. Being the one shining hope for the New York Knicks and a nightmare for the rest of the NBA. Because how the world do you guard somebody who has the fluidity of somebody like Kristaps as well as the strength and defensive awareness and defensive production while also being able to give you 20 to 25 and shoot 35 to 38% from three? 35 to 36%, excuse me, from three. And be able to shoot from the mid-range and get to the rack and dunk on you. He wasn't, he wasn't a eunuch, the original unicorn. 
the original unicorn for this era of basketball. That's what he was. Let's not forget that. So when it comes to Victor Wimbenyama, we have seen a player like him before in Bobo and in Christophe Porzingis. We have. That's not out the question to say. We have seen that before. The difference is with Victor, there's a different level of production and effect on the game that we were waiting on Kristaps and Bobo to actually achieve. Bobo never achieved it. Bobo, for every, we say he should get more minutes. He was on a bunch of different teams and never earned minutes, whether it was through practice or through his individual game production. When he did get time. Plays, he's played, what, six minutes this season? On the, is he on the Phoenix Suns? I mean, he was on the Phoenix Suns at one point in time. Whatever team he's on at the moment in time. Hasn't earned the minutes to show he can actually do stuff. Quick stops. Earned the minutes. Was a starter. Played well. Then had some injuries. Then his plate trailed off. Now he's on the Celtics. They're playing phenomenal now. He's one of the vocal points on that team. He's having a legitimate effect. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely. More power to him. Credit to him. Love to see that he's doing well. Love to see that he's doing phenomenal. Change the fact that both of them were archetypes. But the difference is what we're seeing from Victor is a different level of game impact. He's doing everything that we want to see somebody at his height do and more. On a consistent basis. On a consistent basis. Bobo never panned out. Kristaps panned out to a degree. Overachieved, we're being perfectly honest. From our eyes, because we didn't know. And then fizzled a little bit. Now, back on, the Celtics again had a 30-point performance. I believe in its debut game with them. Been one of the main reasons why that team is one of the best defensive forces in the NBA today. Second best defensively to the Timberwolves, who, by the way, are playing phenomenal. They, I think they finally found a way for it to work with Gobert, Towns, and Edwards, as well as McDaniels. They, we might have to start giving them some legitimate respect. But beyond that conversation, sticking with this one, we have seen Victor Wimbenyama before in Bobo, in Christophe Porzingis. They were the archetypes. We had seen those archetypes before. We never saw it come to fruition like we're seeing it with Victor Wimbledon before. Unicorn-esque players who can do everything on the floor. How do you guard them? Bobo didn't pan out, though he had the archetype to do so. Kristaps overachieved, but then fizzled out a little bit. Never got to that real height of what could we see from a seven-footer with Guard-like abilities in every facet. What could we see from a seven-foot-three player who could dribble the rock, run in transition, run the fast break, shoot the three, score from mid-range, dominate in the paint, and be a defensive juggernaut? All of those things sound like a 2K player if you play 2K. A creative player. A video game-esque final boss. And we didn't think it was going to actually pan out. Because up until this point, Chris Ops, 
Bobo had never happened before. Now we've seen it and it's actually coming to fruition. The complete impact of a player of that type of skill set at that height. Now we can say, okay, we're looking at something we've never seen before from that metric. We've never seen it pan out before. We've never seen a player of his skill set with his size actually succeed in the long term. Now we're, we're, we have legitimate reason to say, oh, it could pan out in the long term when it comes to Victor Wimbledon. That's the difference. And that's why Shaq's comparison to Bobo and Victor is justified. We have seen Victor Wimbenyama before in Bobo and Christoph Porzingis. Christoph was the original archetype. And if you want to go way, way back, Artis Gilmore, way back when he was on the Bulls. I mean way back on the Bulls. Early in his career, when he was healthy, could run the floor. That we had never seen before. At seven foot three, seven foot four, which is what Artis Gilmore was. Maybe seven, I forget how tall Artis Gilmore was. I believe he was seven four. Might have been taller. But way back, Artis Gilmore originally was able to do that. Again, again, the game was different. NBA was different. But we had seen somebody at that point in time who we had never seen before do those types of things at that type of height. Then Kristaps, then Bobo. Archetypes who, if they were healthy, never panned out in the long term. If they panned out, they got injured. Artist Gilmore. And or Kristaps Porzingis to a lesser extent. And didn't reach the heights of what we said could be a game-breaking type player. Now, with Victor Wimbenyama, we are seeing a game-breaking type player who seemingly will not get hurt, hopefully, preferably won't get hurt, and is utilizing all the skill sets to their best of ability. Early at this stage, we're seeing something different, tangibly different, that we didn't see from the rest of them. There's something now showing, consistently showing, when it comes to Victor Wimbenyama. That makes this completely different from anybody else. Which is why he's not like Bobo in the sense of he's actually successful. But in terms of archetype, we have seen a player like this before. What makes Bobo so scary, we've never seen it succeed before. Now we have potentially the ability to see it succeed. We potentially have the ability to see it succeed in the long term and get even better and potentially usurp all of them and break the NBA legitimately. And that's going to be a sight to behold. Which is something I can't, I, I hope it pans out. Because I, I love to see it. I love to see it. And the biggest thing with Victor Wimbenyama is not, one of the biggest things that we thought was going to be held against him was when he gets to the legitimate league, and plays against legitimate talent. When he goes up against big bodies, when he goes up against strength, what's going to be? What's going to happen? But it's not affecting him at all. He's giving everybody fits. You can't. You out muscling him doesn't work. Though he can be out muscled, it doesn't work to hinder his performance. 
and no, relatively anybody in the league, nobody's taller than him. And he's got such good body coordination at that size, he's, he can maneuver around whatever you throw at him. It's an insane combination of skill, speed, athleticism, body coordination, and understanding of the game. And the ability to feel the game and flow as the game flows through him. It's something incredible that I can't wait to see pan out as it goes forward. Now, switching gears to talk about LeBron James. And, of course, we can't be remiss before we get into the topic with his dominance, if it would still be the same dominance if he never went to Miami. Talking about the Lakers as a whole, right now, there's some struggles. I'm not going to lie. Some of these moves that we said was going to be made that I touted were going to make this team legitimately great aren't panning out like we hoped. LeBron Steele's putting up 30, putting up 28. Playing phenomenally, getting off of that minutes restriction that they, for some stupid reason they were trying to get him on for this team. I get, I, I get why they were trying to make it so that he wasn't going or fizzling out later on in the season. Want to take care of a 38, going to be 39 year old man. I understand that completely. However, this team cannot win without him. This team can't be a competitive team without him. Even with Anthony Davis on the floor, they. Dropped so much when he's not on the court. It makes no sense at all. When you have people lining up, granted, I understand. Injuries are here. You don't got Rui Hachimura at the moment. You don't got Vando, Jared Vanderbilt. I understand it. Even with that being the case, with how much you made moves as a Lakers organization, this still should have been a situation where you are still productive. You are still able to produce. You are still looking like a competent basketball team when you don't have LeBron on the floor. If anything, all these pieces were supposed to be something to give LeBron even more cushion to be able to say, I can take some load off of my shoulders and leave it to them to produce like they need to produce. But it just hasn't been the case. For every couple of games that D'Lo's been good, what happens? He goes back to being the D'Lo that we all get frustrated with. Consistently, it, we, Christian Woods been playing good. I, I'm not going to get on Christian Woods, but he's not being utilized as needed. Cam Reddish been put in the starting lineup, came off the bench, hasn't been producing as necessary at all. And he's supposed to be one of the athletic wings, especially on the defensive end, that we're supposed to give this team the fast break opportunities necessary. And we've seen it, we've seen it in spurts when he ripped Kawhi and played some good defense on him. But as a whole, hasn't panned out as well as shooting abysmal in general. Don't understand why he's been like this throughout his whole career. Now with the opportunity to be one of the definitive best guys on a second unit, still can't produce. We all were saying, myself included, there was going to be something legitimate when he gets on this team. Opportunities that he wasn't going to get on the Knicks. But still hasn't panned out. Gabe Vincent right now is robbing money. What was it, $33 million? And isn't playing remotely how he needs to play. Hasn't been, a dom- hasn't been a dominant shooter. Hasn't been a great shooter. Hasn't even been a good shooter, if we're being completely honest. And outside of the somewhat, no, excuse me, outside of not even providing good three-point shooting, defensively he's a liability. 
And he will sometimes make a shot of his own, but that's far and few between. Underperforming. Christian Woods and Jackson Hayes haven't been used as they need, like they need to use. Darvin Ham has been still experimenting for some reason. For some reason. Darvin Ham is still experimenting with lineups on an offense that he's been over for about, what, two, three years? Still trying to find what works doesn't make any sense when you have a formula. I get it. Yes, people need to earn minutes. Perfectly fine. But you're still going out with three guard lineups when it doesn't make sense with this team's best ability is to be long, strong, and defensively apt and switchable and run out on the fast break. And still, you refuse to make a lineup that is necessary to get this team the offensive production that's necessary. It makes no sense as a coach that you're still doing it. So like your struggles are abundant. But you can't put it on AD. That's the one thing you can say. You can't put this on AD. For the past couple games, was it 26 points, 30 points, two, three blocks every game, shooting above 50% from the field, dominating down low, has been healthy, consistent, Outside of, I think, the last game when he had to get pulled out for injury. But outside of that, has been powering through, for the most part, living up to the change that he said he was going to make this season. Nothing on Anthony Dix. He's been playing like he needs to play. LeBron's been playing like he needs to play. Darvinham and the rest of Darvinham and his lineups, as well as individually the rest of the pieces that were picked up by the Lakers, have not played up to par. And it's failing this team. And they need to get it right because this is not the team that looked like they were going to improve on the already great overachieving season that they had last year, nearly getting to the finals. When nobody thought they would even get to beyond the first round, if they got to the first round, let alone the play-in. This is bad. For the Lakers. But individually, for LeBron specifically, he's still been playing like LeBron. Still been playing great. Still been playing phenomenal. Still been playing wonderful. And has been playing like he's fully healthy. Because now he is fully healthy. Remember, had a foot injury. Played through all year long, last year. Now he's been playing fully healthy. And we see it. It's been great. Phenomenal to see. Phenomenal to see. But one of the questions that has came up with LeBron in his career, if he did not play in Miami, would he still have been the player that we see him as now? Would he still be the same dominant LeBron James that we see today? Many people saying yes. Many people saying no. Many people saying yes. Yada, yada, yada. All this noise. Stephen A. Smith was saying stuff about it. Shannon Sharp was saying stuff about it. Every single legitimate media person has been saying stuff about it. Hopefully I'm a legitimate media person in your eyes. And we'll get there one day, absolutely. At least in recognition. <laughs> I feel like I already am. I keep everything as even killed as possible. That's a conversation for another day. My credibility is for another day. But you can't question it. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. You can't question my credibility. I keep it just like it needs to be. Unbiased. 
throughout all fronts. But in terms of with LeBron getting back on track, talking about LeBron and would he have been the player that he is now without Miami? Yes, he would have. LeBron would have been the same player that he is now, even if he never went to Miami. Because people are people are misleading in terms of their thought process when we talk about who LeBron would have been as a player today. The comparing career in terms of accolades and achievement with the player who is LeBron as he is right now. The accolades versus the talent. Would they have been the same today? Would we still be seeing LeBron at 38 years old playing like he's playing now? If he never went through the, 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 the swing of Miami? The answer is yes. Because without Miami, if he did not go to another competent team, and escape the black hole that was the Cleveland Cavaliers at that point in time. Where he was the only saving, and again, I love, I love Big Z, respect Larry Hughes, all that. March, respect him. Nowhere near that team should have ever been competitive. Ever been competitive. If it wasn't for LeBron. The reason why they got the 60 wins is because of LeBron. The reason why Larry Hughes got an all-star appearance was because of LeBron playing beside him. Never got to one after that. Because he was never that big of a caliber type player. But with the bomb being there, got there. But out of the black hole of Cleveland, when he went to Miami, he played phenomenal. You saw the evolution. You saw the switch flip from, oh my gosh, he's already dominant to, oh, he's hit his prime. He's in his prime now. But that wouldn't have changed if he didn't go to Miami. He still would have been just as dominant. Still would have been running through the league. Still would have played at his athletic peak for those four years. Undoubtedly. Unquestionably. No doubt about it. That wouldn't have changed. And the player they turned into now wouldn't have changed. It just would have been the accolades that would have changed. Because if he didn't go to Miami and went to another organization that was either A, just as competent as Cleveland, which would have been abysmal, or be just as competent as Miami in terms of the makeup of the team around them, we either would have seen the same outcome or no rings, or maybe one ring. But that's it. Less hardware, but the same player would have still been the same player. And then going on from Cleveland to what we see LeBron now, we would have still seen LeBron play as LeBron right now. Oh, and you'll bring up, no, he didn't have the killer mentality. He didn't have the killer instinct. He didn't have the ability to turn up when necessary. Yes, he did. You're just being stupid and, and overlooking when he did. When he went to, when he got drafted to Cleveland, one MVP. Beat Detroit, who just won a title by himself. Scored 25 points on him. Straight. Cooked him. The best defensive team in the league at that point in time. One of the best defensive teams in the era at that point in time. Cooked him completely. Right after they won a title. Looking to repeat. Right after that same team went through Kobe last year. Went through everybody. Beat him. By himself. Got to the finals by himself 
against the Spurs. Dominated against Orlando, though they lost the series. Dominated against Orlando against, at that point in time, a top five player in the world. Arguably the second best player in the world in Dwight Howard. And against the best defensive player of that era, put up 35 and 10. Maybe it was close to 30. Maybe it was closer to 37. Might have been closer. Between 35 and 38 points. I'll put it at that at that scope. I don't got the numbers right in front of me. 35 to 38 points he put up on Dwight Howard. The best defensive player of that generation. Three-time, three-time defensive player of the year. Cooked the entire league. Was getting into the playoffs, carrying everything by himself, hitting game winners by himself. He was the same player. And then hit his stride even more. Hit his prime when he got to Miami. He just had the pieces around him that worked. He was always unselfish. He didn't have anybody to pass to. Now he's got people to pass to. What do you know? He's able to actually dish and be effective. He was always effective. But he'd be even more effective. Miami didn't. Miami gave him the necessary pieces and the necessary organization that actually wants to win to supply him with legitimate pieces to make it so that his play was successful. Hence why when he got to Miami, all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, it's unstoppable. Because it wasn't just that LeBron was teaming up. It was the fact that the entirety of that organization was now built to maximize what LeBron did. He had the McKillum mentality in Cleveland. Dominated in Cleveland. It was when he got to Miami, he hit his prime. One of the, and one of the worst instances of his career has been the 2011 Finals. Never going to hold, never going to not hold that against him. Absolutely. But it wasn't because he didn't have the killer instinct. Don't be stupid. Don't be ignorant. Don't be blase over the facts. LeBron James was deferring to Dwayne Wade because he didn't want to step on his toes. He didn't want to just try to rip the team away from Wade because he knew this was Wade's squad. This was Wade's spot. Wade had been the leader. Wade had gotten to a title with Shaq already. Antoine Walker already. Gary Payton already had gotten to a chip with them. Had been the best player on that team. He's coming into his domain. Dwayne Wade talked to him and said, yo, get out of this. You're the best player on this team. Play like it. Then next season, up and did and dominated. Because he then just went, reverted back to the already known killer that he was in Cleveland. He was already a killer. He was already a dog. He was already had the killer instinct. He was already able to take over games. He was already single-handedly able to affect everything on the floor. Nothing changed except for the accolades attached to him. But he had been playing like that. He just played better. He just played better. But the mentality never changed. He quelled that mentality because of it was Dwayne Wade's team. And when Dwayne gave him the green light to go for it, this is your squad now. 
They became unstoppable. One of the greatest teams in NBA history. So don't ever say that LeBron wouldn't have been LeBron without Miami. Yes, he would have. This same LeBron now would have still been LeBron if he never went to Cleveland. If he never went to Miami. If he never went to Miami. Still being able to put up 30 points a game. Still being the best playmaker in the NBA today. Well, outside of Nikola Jokic right now, the best playmaker in the NBA today. Still being a top 10, top 5 player. Still being the most important piece on his squad. Still being the all-time leading scorer. Still being one of the most complete players that we've ever seen in NBA history. At 38 years old, going to be 39. Still being LeBron James. Still being the best player I've ever seen. There is nothing that would have changed about LeBron if he didn't went to Miami except for accolades. Because a team was actually built around him. A team was actually made for him to succeed. A team was built for him to legitimately get over the humps that were an organization that was not built to legitimately put pieces around him. So yes, we would have seen LeBron still be LeBron today if he never went to Miami. Hardware wouldn't have been the same. Fine. But the player still would have been the same. Because there's been nobody in the league of this generation and arguably ever that has been this committed this dedicated, this obsessive of the game of basketball, outside of the great greats. Again, MJ, Kobe, Bill Russell, Wilt, the, the players of that ilk. Again, not comparing who's all of the players that encompass that ilk of the game that took it that seriously. He was one of them. And there's an argument that he might be the most dedicated of all of them. At least tied. This is LeBron. Accolades may not have been the same if we didn't go to Miami. Completely fine. But that doesn't mean that the player wouldn't have been the player. LeBron still would have evolved. LeBron still would have adapted. LeBron still would have played Probably the exact same way that we see him playing now at this very age right now if the trajectory of his career was different. He didn't go through Miami. And he went through somewhere else. That's it. That's the only thing that would have changed. Nothing else would have changed about who LeBron is and how he plays and what he does and how great his talent is. That wouldn't have affected anything. Nothing. Don't get caught up in Oh, he wouldn't have been a he wouldn't have been a champion. He wouldn't have been a a, a, a MVP. He wouldn't have been, don't get caught up in that. Talking about he because he went to Miami, he got those things. Yes, he got those things. Absolutely. Kevin Durant got those things as well when he went to Golden State. Why did he get a ring and an MVP when he went to Golden State? Because of the fact that when he went to Golden State, they already had a team built to succeed. He was surrounded with talent that could actually get him where he wanted to go and make his production valid. 
Not that LeBron's production was ever invalid, but in terms of, okay, we do this, do this, do this, and I play like I play, we got a good shot at winning a championship. And it came to fruition. When he went to Golden State, the play didn't change. He never changed up his play style. And he probably would have never changed up his play style if he never went to Golden State. What did Golden State add? A, a legitimate cast that could actually ball, that could get a title with his skill set. And what happened when they got to the position to win a title? They won. And he played the best out of all of them. The play style didn't change. It was just he was on a situation that actually made his play style impact to the point that they would win a chip. While LeBron, while he was while while when he was in OKC, his play style, in all honesty, still could have gotten him to a chip if he had stayed in OKC. But opted to leave. Again, still an incredibly weak move. We still hate it. Still don't look at those championships the same, nor his MVPs the same. On Golden State, that doesn't change the fact that, again, he won. But if he didn't win, if he never left, his play style still would have been the same. Kevin Durant would have still been Kevin Durant today. If he never won a chip, if he never went to Golden State, if he stayed in OKC, if he even if he went to Brooklyn, if everything else stayed the same except for him going going to Golden State, he still would have been Kevin Durant that we see today. Same thing with LeBron. If he didn't go to Miami, he still would have been the same LeBron that we see today. That wouldn't have changed. The accolades due to you now having the necessary pieces to get you to a title and make it so that your impact on the floor actually results in a title rather than being in vain due to you having a dominant game, a dominant series, yet your team just can't compete at all like it was in Cleveland or like it was again in Cleveland in 2018 or 2017. When the team couldn't compete because of how dominant the other players were. 2018 was essentially 07 all over again. 06, whenever the world, the Cleveland went to the finals the first time LeBron was there. 06 against the Spurs, I believe. 2018 and 06 were the same thing. LeBron by himself. No Kyrie. Not even an Isaiah Thomas. Kevin Love was a phenomenal still. Nowhere close to the caliber of secondary star. Necessary to get to it to, to win the championship. Drugged them there. It's like he drug them there in 06. Should have won MVP in 2018. Won MVP, I believe, in 06 or 07, won the two. And what happened? Ran into a juggernaut of a squad in the Spurs in 06 or 07. And then Golden Stake with Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green in 2018. Without anybody. Ready to him again in 2017 as well, but still. 
You get the point I'm making still the same. Nobody was there to make that to, to even have a shot at winning. But the individual player was still the individual player. That does not change at all. And that's what LeBron is and still would have been today. Would have been dominant, still would have been the same player, would not have shrunk, not gotten the killer mentality. All these things that you want to say about, oh, the Heat made LeBron. No, LeBron made LeBron. And LeBron, if he didn't go to the Heat and it was just Bosch and Wade, they wouldn't have gotten to the finals. That would have been a second-round exit. I guarantee it. I've always had that say, sentiment. Without LeBron on that Miami Heat, they don't go nowhere beyond the second round. Don't sniff the finals. Same roster, just without LeBron, they don't sniff the finals. I know that for a fact. I know that for a fact. I know it for a fact. And this is not bashing anybody's legacy or anything like that. Not bashing weight or anything like that. Never. But I understand that the heat culture is heat culture. Heat culture is phenomenal. That we love it. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that they were, just because the heat culture is so revered, they made a player who was already made when he already had those same attributes that you're saying that he lacked, he already had them in Cleveland. It was just the fact that he deferred to Wade his first year. And if he didn't defer to Wade, not because he didn't have it in him, but because of the fact that he didn't want to step on toes, his words, not mine, Wade's words, not mine. Didn't want to take over the team out of to, and be disrespectful. But once Wade instilled in him that, yo, this is your squad. You can't play like the second best player. Like you're deferring to me. You got to play like you play the best player in the world. The best player on this team. Okay. He just reverted back to what he did in 07. And what happened? Domination. Plain and simple. That's how it was. It doesn't say the heat culture is just blase. No, never. But what LeBron was when he got to Miami and dominated, he was already that in Cleveland. It just didn't amount to anything because the roster was so abysmally undermanned based on his production and how far they went. Nowhere close to actually be able to compete. For a title. They shouldn't have gone to the finals. They shouldn't have been a one seed in the West. They shouldn't have been. In any way, shape, or form as good as they were. And they weren't. When LeBron immediately left. When they had the entire roster to say. It was him who was making that thing run. It was him who was making that ship fly. It was him who was the fuel. For everything that they actually were able to accomplish. Without him, they were nothing. A bunch of bums and scrubs without LeBron. We understand this. 
But he was always this player. And what it evolved into the very player that we saw in Miami, and what it evolved even more to the player that we saw in Cleveland, and what evolved again to the player that we see now in LA. Evolution wouldn't have changed. Just the hardware, but not the player. It's one of the few instances where the player, despite outside circumstances, would have been the same player if the career panned out the same way. That wouldn't have changed. And that's what LeBron James is. The epitome of consistency. It wouldn't have changed if he was, if he didn't go to Miami. Just the hardware, the accolades might have changed. But he, he wouldn't have changed. He would have still been the same player. Still been LeBron, ran rough shot through everybody. Still the LeBron that caused fits for every, a nightmare, legitimate nightmare. One of the scariest players to ever grace his basketball floor, LeBron James in Miami. And then turned into the LeBron that we see in Cleveland. And then evolved again into the LeBron in his return to Cleveland. Then evolved again into the LeBron that we see today in L.A. All of that would have been the same. None of that would have changed. Not one thing would have changed, except for the hardware that he's got in his, on his fingers, in his cabinet, and in his legacy. That's the only thing. The player himself still would, would not have changed. Still been the same in my eyes. But now going off on a player that has consistency, to a player that now, in terms of on-player, on-court production, to a player that has consistently gotten his way in the NBA for trade talks, James Harden. James Harden now has gotten traded from the Sixers to the Clippers. It's done. It's finally over. My goodness, the saga is finally done with. Daryl Moy and James Harden to split, cut ways. Adios, amigo. I'm out of here. And Daryl Moy made it happen and got him to the, the Clippers. Leaving the Sixers and Joel Embiid all alone. Firstly, talking about James Harden and how he fits on this squad with the Clippers. With him on the Clippers, does it change much? No, honestly, I don't think it does. Not because he's not a good player. No. We get that. He can still be a facilitator. He can still be, a, a on occasion, the James Harden of old. But at minimum, be another scoring threat and a dominant playmaking threat for the rest of the roster. Perfectly fine. Had his first game with the Clippers, got 17 points, 6 of 9 on shooting. I believe got a steal as well, 6 assists. Again, played decently well for his first game there. At best, he can be another great offensive piece for this squad. And can make them an even bigger threat in terms of what they do offensively. Become one of the best offensive teams in the NBA. Perfectly fine. However, with them now having James Harden, they lose defensive ability. They lose great switch ability. And they now have James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Kawhi Leonard, and Paul George all in the starting lineup. And specifically Harden and Westbrook. I don't know how that's going to fly. I don't think that's going to fly. Mind you, Everything that we've been saying about Westbrook when he was on the Lakers, which was all 
justified, warranted, and correct. Don't get that twisted at all. He played like a bum on the Lakers. Absolutely. Played like an absolute bum on the Lakers. Don't let the 18 points fool you. Shot abysmal. She would shoot the Lakers out of games. Make bonehead decisions. Stupid passes. Couldn't finish at the rim. Audible, visually made that team worse when he was on the floor. That is true. That's all well and true. That ain't changing for nothing. I don't care if you're a fan of him or not. I don't care if you hate me for saying that or not. That ain't changing for nothing. He sucked when he was on the Lakers. Sucked. Now that he's on the Clippers, however, it's a better fit. Oh, look at that. A better fit. When he's the ball-dominant man, in charge of facilitating everything. Now, he's able to perform and produce. Average 15, been playing legitimately great on the Clippers organization. Jails better, fits better, is comfortable. Looks, looks like similar to the Westbrook of old. Not saying as dominant, nowhere close. Nowhere close to as dominant. But you see, okay, yeah, this is closer to the Westbrook that I remember. And it's the Westbrook I wanted to see play when he was on L.A. Perfectly fine. Absolutely. But now that he's got James Harden there, it's a situation where how is it going to be that a ball-dominant player like Westbrook, who operates best when he's got the ball in his hands, can play with somebody like James Harden who also does the exact same thing. Who's led the league in assists before. Who's been a great playmaker, but still a ball-dominant playmaker nonetheless. And it's, in my opinion, it's going to take Westbrook out of that comfort zone that he's got in the Clippers organization. It's going to take him out of that rhythm that he's got for him. Out of that comfortability. Out of that flow of play that he's now gotten used to and is now starting to legitimately be good at inside the makeup of the Clippers as we now know them or as we formerly knew them before James Harden got there. Now with James Harden there and Westbrook's got to play off the ball again and isn't the guy facilitating everything again? This is, this, I don't know if it's going to be good. I really don't know if it's going to be good. Because you have to understand, Westbrook's been one of the main catalysts for why the Clippers' offense, especially for three, has been great. Finding people. A dimer. We love it. We love that. But now when he, if James Harden gets here, James Harden's going to be the ball-dominant man. Let's, let's just be frank. James Harden is going to be the guy with the ball in the end the majority of the time. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. Because this isn't even like Westbrook and Harden in Houston. Westbrook was having 27. Along with James Harden, 30-something. It's not like that anymore. James Harden is clearly the better offensive talent and playmaker at this stage in both of their respective careers. So to put the ball not in Harden's hands would be a disservice, a waste of a trade. But with that being the case, you're now going to hinder Westbrook's ability to operate with the ball in his hands. And he's not a great off-ball player. Never been a great off-ball player. 
Never been a great shooter. Yes, he's shooting well above what I ever thought he was going to be able to shoot this season. Pops to him. Doesn't change the fact that, again, will, how long, one, how long would that stay? And B, is that because of the fact that he's got the ball in his hands and is in rhythm with the offense? Not with Westbrook there, not with Harden there, excuse me, and the ball not being in the same flow of when it touches his hands and when he doesn't, will Westbrook be able to still have that same feel for his shot being essentially a spot-up shooter, which most likely he's going to be? Or vice versa, let's say he don't take the ball out of his hands. Now, do you look? Do you looking for James Harden to be more so of the, a scorer than a facilitator? Though at this stage, his career has been a better facilitator than scorer. What is it that we're going to see from James Harden offensively if with the ball in his hands he's averaging 20 points a game, not being an off-ball player, if Westbrook is the guy to be the main man controlling the offense, how is that going to work for him? Is he going to get out of it? Is he going to not pan out well? Again, 17.69 shooting, first game phenomenal. We got to see some consistency with anything, with any player, with anybody that I talk about on this show. Consistency is the key. We have to see consistency. If this is going to be the, the Harden that we see, perfectly fine. Again, the 17-point loss was to the Knicks with one of the worst, excuse me, the worst shooting big man or just player in the game today in Julius Randle. And you lost to him. It's, it's not going to overreact. Not going to sit here and, and make brash claims. But it is a point of contention that needs to be talked about. Will he, or either one of them, be able to accommodate the other at this stage in their career and make it work? Or will it be that two ball-dominant point guards who operate on-ball best and not off-ball the best won't be able to gel? And if anything... The one player that was gelling with this organization in Westbrook will now get taken out of that rhythm and potentially be put back in a situation that we saw him in when he was in L.A., looking uncomfortable, doing too much, overthinking, and over and playing outside of himself. And ultimately being a hindrance to what this team can accomplish. Like he was in L.A. Will he still be the same in L.A. on the Clippers? With James Harden now on the roster. It's a storyline that we're definitely going to keep up with throughout the rest of this season. I don't think that I don't think they improved. I don't think they improved with this trade to the Clippers. I don't think they got better. I don't think they got better. Because I don't know if the production of Harden is going to be the, what I think it needs to be in order for this team to actually make that leap necessary. Because they've always been a final contender. They've always been a championship contender. They've always been a threat. Some reason, never, ever, ever able to get past that threshold of having on paper looking phenomenal to legitimately getting to that threshold of, yes, we are here. We have arrived. We are the real deal. They haven't gotten there. Maybe they'll get there this year with this team. Maybe Harden is a good piece to get them over the hump. I don't think he is. I think we see the same 
Clippers that we've been saying all season long. All seasons long, plural. And I don't think he makes a big improvement. Then talking about Joel Embiid on the 76ers. Where does he lie in all of this? Now that he's gone through the process twice over, where does he go? What does he do? Where does, where does he stand? Where does the Sixers stand? Well, the Sixers most likely aren't going to be competitive unless we see Tyrese Maxey turn into a legitimate dog for that team. And he's been a dog. He's been great. Now with the rock fully in his hands, oh, we can see this man thrive legitimately. He really could. And take that number two spot to the number one of Joel Embiid, former MVP. That doesn't change the fact that at this point in time, if I'm Joel Embiid, it's time to request a trade. Oh, this process is done. I'm done. I'm done. I am done. I have been the one anchor on this entire organization through Ben Simmons, through James Harden, through Tobias Harris, through P.J. Tucker, through that entire roster overall that we've had. I have been the only constant for this team, and I am back here again for a second time alone without any legitimate name to my side. Again, no disrespect to Tyrese Maxey, but for him to be that the definitive number two, he's got to show it. He just got to show it. That's just the truth. He's got to show it. But we don't expect Tyrese Maxey to be the man that makes this team a finals contender. Like we were saying, they could potentially be with James Harden. Now, with just Embiid there, it's, brother, what the world? What the world? It's time for me to get out of here. I am done. If I'm doing the beat, I'm done. I'm done because there's been no consistency at all. Every couple of, see, every two seasons, it's something substantial that's overturning this whole organization. Some sort of drama, some sort of debacle, lies, injuries, deceit, fading in the playoffs. Constantly letting go of pieces that I wanted, like Jimmy Butler. My goodness, if Jimmy Butler and Joel Embiid were on the roster together, on this, this would be insane. That would be that would be genuinely scary. But no, you let him go for no good reason. You let him go. Though Joel Embiid loved him, then you get harder. He wants out. And he didn't play up to the caliber that you wanted Harden to play. Didn't play bad. Played well. Relative to what you wanted from a superstar. Or star at that point. Didn't live up to the expectations I was looking for. Probably not to the expectations that James Harden was looking for. But at least he was looking to build with Harden. At least you want to be was looking to build with Harden. Potentially. And now he's gone as well. I'm done. I'm done. I am gone. I am asking for a trade if I can within the next two years. Because this is ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. Unless Tyrese Maxey makes a huge jump 
What can this Sixers organization do? What can the Sixers do at this point in time to actually compete for a title? Rumors has it they're going to trade for Zach Levine. Getting assets together to trade for Zach Levine. That's just going to leave them even more compromised for the whole of the roster. Because you're going to give up for Zach Levine, most likely Tobias Harris. They're going to add for Tyrese Maxey, most likely. And then a couple other players that aren't really great, but they're all you got. So you're not really going to have a roster, even if you get somebody like Zach Levine on your roster, to pair with you want to be. It's going to be another rebuild. It's going to take another year or two to get the pieces that you need to fully make your team built for the playoffs, built for an NBA Finals run that you've been waning on for the past five, six years since this process hit its peak. I'm done if I'm Joel Embiid because this is ridiculous. I've given you opportunity after opportunity, chance after chance, and you as an organization have consistently let it fail, consistently let it fall through your fingertips. Whether it was your fault or not, Ben Simmons wasn't your fault, organization's fault. Or excuse me, wasn't the organization's fault, more so Ben Simmons' fault, who just shrunk and never got mentally back there, looking like he might be mentally back now, but still, took him so long, they got him out of there. Didn't want to play for Philly. Had to trade him. James Harden now doesn't want to play for Philly again. Got to trade him. Jim Butler seemingly was ready to do something, build here. Loved the city. Loved the tough love environment. Seemingly would have had a running mate that would have been stuck by him for life. At least for longer than just three years. Two years. Y'all traded him away. And if I'm Joel Embiid, looking at the timeline of the 76ers, with me on this roster, as this process has been consistently going forward, I'm done. I am out of here. Be prepared to see Joel Embiid ask for a trade within the next two to three seasons. Regardless of what the Sixers do, unless they build a juggernaut of a squad, don't expect Joel Embiid to want to stay there. Expect him to be the, one of the biggest free agents or one of the biggest assets on the trading block for the entirety of the NBA. Shake up the entire landscape of the league. Look for that to happen. Absolutely. Watch and wait. Look at watch. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Watch because it's going to happen. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. But with that being said, this has been another episode of the new uh, of the Watch Report. Excuse me. With me, your host, Jean-Luc Welch. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. Almost at the Neutral Corner. Also, I got a boxing podcast called The Neutral Corner on ESPN Podcast. Go to ESPN730 to gain the website or go look up on The Neutral Corner with John Lugwatch on Spotify. You can find all the stuff I talk about in the World of Combat Sports. But this has been specifically The World Report with me, your host, John Lugwatch. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining in on all the happenings on this show. Keep it locked. We always got stuff to cover on this 
empire of a show on this conglomerate that is the watch report we're on every podcasting platform be sure to give us five stars in all of those spaces and we will see you next time peace and love we are out of here